All right, welcome to a non-on-the-road edition of the podcast, which means you'd be able to hear me loud and clear without any background noise, but for I-95, which is always in the background when I'm here in the quote-unquote studio, meaning literally the studio apartment that I live in, (laughs) which happens to be directly on top of Interstate 95. But you know what? When I first moved here, I was worried you'd be able to hear traffic in the background. You can't, actually, which is great. This is the QTR Podcast. I'm happy to be here today. First and foremost, this podcast is brought to you by my official gold and silver bullion providers, the only place I buy my gold and silver bullion. Just talking to these people the other day. Love the people at JM Bullion. The link to them is in my podcast description. JM Bullion's been in business for nearly a decade. They've done over $3 billion in sales, and they are the easiest and, I think, the best way to buy bullion online. They ship discreetly. They turn around my orders quickly. They often have a large supply of inventory and their premiums are reasonable. So send some love over to the people at JM Bullion if you're looking for gold and silver bullion. As a matter of fact, you can email Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com and let her know you're a QTR podcast listener. She will make sure that you get personalized service if you don't feel like navigating the website or clicking through the podcast link. Let them know that the Q-Man sent you over and they'll make sure that you get taken care of. This podcast also brought to you by my longtime supporter, George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. George has teamed up with Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh, Brent Johnson, and many other people whose combined IQ is many multiples of mine to try to help you preserve your wealth in a world of -of out-of-control central banks. George Gammon, one of my dear friends, uh, somebody who I love to listen to, one of the podcasts I put on on the daily. Uh, And I love Rebel Capitalist Pro. I love the uh, question and answer sessions. I love the model portfolios. I love reading their forums, uh, and I think people like Lynn Alden and Brent Johnson are exceptionally sharp. They're some of the sharpest people out there. Um, You know, you know they're sharp because they don't get the airtime on CNBC. And you know why they don't? Probably because their opinions stand at odds with whatever the mainstream is. And that's generally what you want as an investor. I want to do the opposite of whatever Scott Wapner is talking about right now. So check out my friends over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. The link to that is in my podcast description. Well worth it. Something else well worth it if you're looking to fill your brain with stuff on the daily. My friends, Doomberg, their substack, one of my absolute favorites to read. You can check out the Doomberg substack. They basically are experts in energy, and they look at the market through a skeptical lens like I do. Uh, the link to their substack is in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Masterworks, who, you'll have to forgive me, sent me a new script, which I don't have in front of me. (laughs) So I'm going to wing it because that's what I do. I warned all you people in advance. This is how I do my uh, shout outs. Listen, Masterworks allows you to invest in art in ways that you never would be able to otherwise. If you want to invest in a multi-million dollar painting, usually we'd have to go out and buy the painting, which, you know, for peons like me and like you, that is basically impossible. Nobody's going out and dropping $3 million on a Banksy to sit there and look at it in their studio apartment where they pay $700 a month in rent. So 
Masterworks kind of democratizes the process and makes it easier. They sell shares of uh, these paintings and then they, you know, basically deal in the art for you so you don't have to. You know, with the market crashing this year, I've seen my investments in Masterworks rise like 10, 20, uh, double digit percentages. And so the alternative art market has always been, or I'm sorry, the art market has always been a, an alternative market that has been thought of as an inflation hedge. That appears to be the case this year. You can skip the wait list at Masterworks if you use code QTR. They have a wait list to uh, get accounts, but you can sign right up. Use QTR. They will make sure that you get taken care of it. Make sure you please read their pertinent disclaimers on their website uh, because these are uh, securities and I'm sure there are plenty of disclaimers that they uh, are going to have you read as well. Um, but check out Masterworks. Um, cool platform. I liked them before they started supporting the podcast and I used them personally. So easy to recommend. I had Scott Lynn on the podcast if you want to go back and check out the interview with the CEO to try to figure out what exactly gives art value? I don't really understand art that well, but he was nice enough to try to explain to me. This podcast also brought to you by my dear friends. Oh, could I love them more? Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus, who really haven't even talked to these guys too much outside of, uh, we haven't done a podcast with Lucci in a while, and man, I guess we got to do that, huh? But uh, these guys have the Steam Room. The Steam Room is really one of the best original gangster-type ways to track unusual options activity and flow coming into markets. Um, you know, this is a piece of software and a community that these guys have been refining for a decade now. Uh, I love Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. They were two of the first people I started following when I started on FinTwit 10 years ago. Uh, so I've been watching options alerts from these guys for 10 years now. Uh, I've met Lucci and hung out with him numerous times in person. I happen to think he's a great fucking guy. He's somebody that, you know, great guy to do business with. And, you know, their software offers value. The Steam Room can give you insights into moves in the options market, which many times can uh, help telegraph moves in the equities market. Uh, so sometimes people play naughty in the options and you see some trends that look interesting and maybe you don't really know why, but you want to take a bet on something because somebody else is. And then maybe a couple days later you find out some news. Uh, there's always fucky things going on in the options market and the Steam Room helps you kind of uh, discern what those things are and, uh, and maybe help you use them to your advantage. All right. This podcast has a three-drink minimum. I am not a financial advisor. I am not a doctor. This is not financial advice. This is not life advice. Uh, folks, I don't really know what to tell you. I hold no licenses, no registrations. Please uh, do your research elsewhere. Follow me at your own risk. Uh, I exist on the Fringe. My blog is called Fringe Finance. That link is also in the podcast description. I think with all that being said, I, I just can't tell you how happy I am uh, to do today's interview and to speak to Dr. Peter McCullough. All right, so I'm, uh, I'm incredibly honored to have Dr. Peter McCullough here with me today. How are you, Dr. McCullough? Good, good. Um, I was hoping for my listeners that, uh, the, you know, the bio that you sent me contains a lot of the work that you've done related to covid and a lot of my listeners are people that are going to be hearing from you for the first time ever. I was just telling you, I'd listened to a lot of the interviews that you've done uh, for a while. Um, but a lot of people aren't familiar with you. So can you give people a background on your, uh, basically your career and uh, your credentials as a doctor? 
I'm delighted. So I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I am a practicing internist and cardiologist in Dallas, Texas, and I split my time between patient care and scholarship and research. I'm board certified in both internal medicine and cardiology, and I maintain those boards. I hold degrees from Baylor University, the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas, uh, University of Michigan, and Southern Methodist University. I did my uh, medicine residency at the University of Washington in Seattle, my cardiology fellowship at what's now the Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine. Uh, throughout my career, I've held uh, a variety of academic titles as I've risen in the ranks from uh, assistant professor to full professor of medicine to uh, being the chief of cardiology uh, at a university for a period of time, the chief academic scientific officer of a major health system uh, in the United States. Uh, I've been the editor of two uh, major journals, editor-in-chief, and I held those positions for many years. I um, have been on uh, uh, numerous clinical trial study committees, uh, data safety monitoring committees. I've been invited to lecture at the European, Medic uh, European Medicines Association and the US FDA Congressional Oversight Panel. Uh, that's in the years before COVID. I was a named endowed lecturer, visiting professor at Harvard University in 2018. My area of focus has been the interface between heart and kidney disease. How do the heart and kidneys communicate with one another in both health and disease states? And in that area, we've made a series of uh, I think important discoveries that have led to new in vitro diagnostics and therapeutics. So in my field, uh, uh, my claim is that I'm the most published person in my field in the world uh, in history in this area of heart kidney function. And so when COVID-19 came in, I redirected all of that academic scholarship and accomplishment towards the, the virus, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, the illness, and I set out methods uh, of uh, of treatment to prevent hospitalization and death, and then analysis on vaccine safety and efficacy. And I think that's the reason why I was, uh, you know, called by the White House early. I was called by the U.S. Senate. I've uh, frequent contributor on Fox News and Newsmax and Real America and One America News. I've been on ABC News. Uh, I've set the record on the Joe Rogan experience. I've reached <laughs> billions. I've reached billions of people through Daystar, which is the largest Christian broadcasting network. So, believe it or not, some people claim at this point in time I'm the most recognized doctor in the world. Well, that would be great. That would be, I think, a good start, uh, if not for any other reason than to get the other side of the coin. Which, you know, mainly I know we don't know each other too well. I do a finance podcast for the most part, but the running theme throughout my podcast is that I'm trying to look at the other side of the coin. I'm trying to look at the counter argument to anything because to be a successful investor, that's what's important. You got to hear both sides of the story. And, you know, COVID is something that I talked about a ton since it started. Uh, you know, our podcast was one of the first to like ring the alarm about it back in late, very late 2019, early 2020, when nobody was really paying attention to it. The headlines were there, but nobody was paying attention to the fact that it could become uh, a huge issue. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes, as with your work, when I listen to you on Joe Rogan and I listen to you on other podcasts, you know, oftentimes you start to hear some very fascinating things from the other side of the uh, official narrative of what everybody has been told 
from the get-go and you know from day one starting with the fact that they told us this virus had come from a wet market that was conveniently located you know just a couple of miles away from a virology lab but by the way you know we can't talk about that we can't we can't speculate about what would really be occam's razor right the most the, the, the simplest explanation for how this thing got out um just the fact that they told us we couldn't talk about it off the top all of the alarm bells started to go off and and as we've progressed here through the pandemic um the, certainly raised a lot more questions than answers i think on my end and so um let's talk well, about let, let, well let me just address that sure you know one i think one of the things i want your listeners to know is um everything that we're going to talk about is in the open everything is in the wide open and just available for individual verification. Right. So let's just say the origins of SARS-CoV-2. So if you you know just click on the National Library of Medicine, which is the permanent medical record of research in the United States, and the way to access it is through PubMed, P-U-B-M-E-D, and uh, type in Ralph Barrick, uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He was researching beta coronaviruses back in 1992. He's the most knowledgeable person on coronaviruses in the world. He's been well-funded by, uh, by BARDA, which is the, um, the biological threats uh, unit of the NIH, and DARPA, the, the research unit for the military. And Ralph Barrick published with uh, his um, team, the first author is Menacheri, in 2015, two papers in very highly read and cited uh, journals. One is in Nature Communications and the other is in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And these papers in the title said the emergence of the Wuhan Institute of Virology SARS virus into human populations. And in these papers, they describe how U.S. research engineered SARS-CoV-2. They were engineering it with U.S. research to make it invade a human body, that they had humanized the respiratory epithelial tract of an animal, and they made it more infectious, they made it more lethal on purpose. It's in the papers. They were working on this as a biological uh, weapon, a threat, if you will, and they were working on an answer, which was vaccines and monoclonal antibodies, and they published it in the paper. They said it's U.S. research. It was contracted to be done in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And they think the first paper has no Chinese authors on it. The second uh, paper includes three Chinese authors, including Dr. Shengling Wen, who is the lady who is, has expertise in transferring the virus from bats into the, uh, the uh, in vitro models. So this is all published. This is not controversial. Right. This, this is all published. What's controversial is to make up a story that it came out of a fish market. And that actually was published in Lancet. That story was published in Lancet. It's a story. It's not fact. What's fact is what was published in 2015. And it's all available for people to look at. By the way, someone had a great substack out on this today because even those papers were written up in the popular medical news. It was in uh, MedPage Today, I believe. And so someone wrote a substack. And they just went back in time and showed you even in 2016, they were summarizing how it was planned that SARS-CoV-2 would emerge into human populations 
And um, I went ahead and tweeted that out today on my newly restored and rapidly growing Twitter account <laughs> yeah, so people can see this. Yeah. Congrats. I saw you back on Twitter. I was very happy to see that. Can you can and, and what I love about you is everything is sourced and cited and you have a lot of these uh scholarly papers committed to, and peer reviewed papers committed to memory. I hear you fire them off on these podcasts and I go back and I look at them and they're all dead on, which I find fascinating. But can you speak to the idea that uh, look, this was gain-of-function research that was being performed to make the virus, uh, you know, invade a human body quicker and to be more transmissible. And and I think the general public kind of understands that. What what about uh, Mr. Barrick's work and what you've found publicly leads you to conclude what you said uh, about being uh, a bioweapon versus a method of trying to understand coronaviruses better? Where do you where do you place that type of research and how do you back that up? Um, the um, the answer is uh, yes. It was intentional to uh, keep modifying the spike protein to where it would invade a human cell. And the way to do that is the spike protein has a hinge between the outer segment S1 and the inner segment S2. And that hinge is called the furin cleavage joint. Right. Furin is a ubiquitous enzyme that's both within cells and outside cells. And once they kept manipulating that segment, they got it to the point where the virus would lock into a human receptor, the ACE2 receptor, and then furin would cleave it. And so the virus would then inject its, its contents into the human epithelial cell. And then we were off to the races. All that's described in the Ralph Barrick papers. The, and the Ralph Barrick papers are funded by the military biological threats divisions of the NIH and the military. So there's a military origin to the virus. And I think what happened was with SARS-1, uh, which did come out of China, it was about a 90-day epidemic, uh, there was a thought, well, wait a minute, if this ever gets out again, this could be a threat, we better get on top of that. Right. So uh, you know, one of the first things is a Chinese researcher was brought over to the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, and one of the very first experiments was just with the original SARS-1 virus. And then, then the NIH and and, Bart, and DARPA started funding Ralph Barrick, who's uh, very well along in understanding coronaviruses. And you know, it's interesting. Ralph Barrick, who's the most knowledgeable person in the world on coronaviruses, is the most silent through the pandemic. Right. I mean, this this guy should have been advising America about you know how the virus was engineered, how the spike protein was engineered, what we should do about it. Now, I'm not qualified to determine whether or not this is a bioweapon. I can tell you that um, a paper by Farkas and colleagues that was published in Military uh, Medicine, the journal, evaluated SARS-CoV-1 on all the criteria of a bioweapon, and they concluded it is a bioweapon. They concluded it is, and so did Dr. Li Ming Yang in two publications. So we have three publications that have, that have concluded scientifically that SARS-CoV-2 is a bioweapon, meaning it, 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 it has a potential intent of use of uh, harming populations. And that furin cleavage site is really the, uh, uh, the uh, what are they, the coup de grace. I mean, if you read like Richard uh, Ebright, who's a gentleman from Rutgers, I'm sure you're familiar with, I've been kind of following his takes also on COVID throughout the last year or two. Uh, he, among uh, several other well credentialed people seem to think that that modification in the fear and cleavage site is the um, 
is the coup de gras in terms of this being man-made versus uh, having natural zoonotic origins, right? Yeah, well, it, it is man-made because Ralph Barrick in the papers tells you how they made the modification. <laughs> they just spell it out for you. I mean, it's not speculation. You don't have to you don't have to scratch your head over the changes in the base pairs. They tell you how they did it right there in the papers. So, and it's in the so it, it's in the papers, and I can tell you it's in the grants too. Don't forget the research grants that are written. And it was University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Harvard, a Swiss institute. Um, I doubt the Chinese did too much, you know, intellectual contribution to this. They were pretty much just the lab where this work was done. If if they could have done it at UNC, they would have done it. But there was a moratorium on gain-of-function research. But sure, this meets the definition of gain-of-function because uh, it it improved the function of the virus to right. allow it to invade, infect, and then reproduce uncontrollably. And so it, it, it's all there. And the, th the thing that uh, baffles me is why wouldn't people just read the papers, read the evidence that's abundantly available right in front of us, that's it's forever in medical history. You know, this is in the National Library of Medicine. This is forever. You can just go there and read them over and over again. It will never go away. <laughs> People say, well, let's have investigations. Let's try to ponder these base pairs and if it could have happened naturally or not. So don't worry about it. Just read the papers. It didn't happen naturally. They tell you how they did it. People don't want to read Dr. McCullough. They want they want the you know they want somebody to hand them the answer to what happened, and they want to memorize it you know a five second snippet about it, and they want to just get on with it. They don't they don't care enough to read, which is baffling in a situation like this because when you just start to scratch the surface on some of these things, you you, you can't help but ask yourself like what you said to me before we before we started talking about this, which is just like is this one of the biggest uh, you know biggest national travesties global travesties in, in history um which is you know i think history is not going to be kind to a lot of this you know peter daszak just uh it was reported on actually i think by me i noticed that uh mr daszak of the eco health alliance was awarded several million more dollars this year uh to continue research on coronaviruses. I found that through a public source, one of the uh, national databases. Um, in your opinion, is it safe to say that when Mr. Daszak penned his op-ed for The Guardian, where he cast off uh, concerns about the lab as, as conspiracy theories, and, you know, of course, there was that publication in The Lancet as well, uh, that these people knew damn well what the reality of the situation was. I mean, we can't put ourselves in their mind, but in your opinion, was that the case? I think, well, I think what Dasik is trying to do is simply <clears throat> distract people from the published reality that the work was done in the Wuhan lab. And the Eco Health Alliance was the go-between between the National Institutes of Health and, and the group in the United States and doing gain-of-function research in Wuhan, China. So uh, the United States government uh, probably couldn't directly contract with that Chinese lab. They had to use a go-between, right, okay. which was the EcoHealth Alliance, and that's his role. Remember, uh, he's also somebody who's very quiet, just like Ralph Barrick. And when people are really quiet and there's a worldwide calamity going on and there is a paper trail right to those people, uh, it makes one immediately suspicious. Well, and you can contrast their behavior with yours, right? You, you, What you said basically is, look, you're this extremely 
uh, credentialed and extremely qualified cardiologist. So when COVID hit, what did you do? You, you stopped everything you were doing and you poured 100% of your effort in trying to help the nation as best you could by, you know, furthering our knowledge of this and trying to get to the bottom of, you know, best treatments, best practices as quickly as possible. And here you have these other people who are essentially already experts, right, that have just kind of silently backed out of the room. That's true. There's true. Uh, uh, anytime we have a national disaster and it's related to something that's pretty straightforward, it's SARS-CoV-2, we should be spending all the time and effort with the people who are we're closely working with SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. But to have Ralph Barrick, Manicherry, um, uh, Peter Daszak, uh, those at the National Allergy, Immunology, uh, and Infectious Disease Branch of the NIH, those in DARPA, in the military, for them to be completely absent from the conversation as this devastation takes place over the world is, is notable. It's really notable. You'd think they'd actually feel bad about what happened and said, listen, we got, I gotta, they got to jump in with all their expertise. They have to help us defuse this crisis. Uh, there must be ways of uh, trying to shut this thing down. Uh, but instead, they literally evaporate off of the face of the earth. You don't see them uh, at all. And um, this, this uh, uh, in a sense, uh, is, is so striking that uh, to just let these Sure. These uh, these theories that are completely incorrect, that it came out of a fish market, run wild. I mean, Barrick should have been the first person to come out and say, no, it didn't come out of a fish market because we actually did this in our research grants. So the work was done in the lab. I think the question on the table is, you know, what happened in the lab? Uh, and people have said, well, it was intentionally released from the lab. Uh, I, I don't think there's any, um, any evidence uh pattern for that. To me, it looks like it was an accidental uh, yeah. release. Yeah. Uh, there, there were, you know, the patient zero uh, is, was apparently a worker in the lab and uh, invariably she probably went to the, to the fish market and that's how it spread there. Um, you know, there were people who suffered and died in Wuhan, China. The travel pattern from Wuhan to the rest of the world is pretty straightforward. Wuhan's, by the way, a huge city. It's, um, got, it's very vertical. It's got skyscrapers. I've been to China five times, never been to Wuhan, but I know cities like it. And I think Americans underestimate the enormity of these cities, how big they are population-wise. And, um, uh, and, and then it's, it's uh, out from there. Now, there were pandemic preparedness planning meetings, again, because this is a part of a biological threat program. Uh, United States has a monkeypox, smallpox, biological threat program where they, again, they work on the threat, they work on the, the answer to it, uh, monoclonal antibodies, uh, drugs, and vaccines. We have an anthrax program, and we had a SARS program. These are, these are military assets, and they're funded through these uh, entities. In 2012, DARPA, uh, it's still on their website today. You can just type it in. They announced a program called the ADEPT P3 program, the Pandemic Preparedness uh, Planning Program. And they announced they were going to use messenger RNA vaccines to end pandemics within 60 days. And they have a figure about the life cycle, uh, how they can figure something out, the genetic code, put the genetic code in messenger RNA, and then make a vaccine. That's in 2012. And it's sitting right there on their website. 
So, so when SARS-CoV-2 uh, outbreak happens and COVID-19 illness strikes the United States and President Trump gets out and says, well, we have Operation Warp Speed and we're going to come up with vaccines in nine months, you know, he should have been honest and, and should have, you know, told America that, wait a minute, we've been working on this since 2012. And, you know, an honest, an honest press briefing would have said, listen, DARPA has had a program, it's called ADEPT-P3, and we're going to put it into action. They, they have been working on these genetic vaccines since 2012. It's not, it's not Pfizer or Moderna that's going to save us. It's a military program, and the military uses contractors. This is an interesting part of the story. Uh, BioMeru, which is a French conglomerate, uh, they built the biosecurity annex of the Wuhan lab. Right. Uh, uh, and this was commissioned by Jacques Chirac. He did a deal with China. But the CEO of BioMeru at the time was Stefan Bainzel. So his company actually helped build the lab. And I've been in some Chinese labs. They have now, very, now the CEO very, of Moderna. Right. So listen to this. So he helps build the biosecurity lab there in the annex. And then in 2011, he, he, he goes from BioMeru and he joins a one-person company in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, Moderna. Yeah. He's, already a, he's already a billionaire. He's already a billionaire. Why does a billionaire join a one-person company? There was a plan for Moderna to work with DARPA and start working on this ADEPT P3 program. And so Moderna gets one of its big first federal military contracts in 2013. This is all on the website. You can just click through this. This is not conjecture. And so Moderna writes the patent for the vaccine with the National Institutes of Health. This is long before 2019. So uh, people need to understand that, you know, there's a rich history here. And so when in 2016, when Anthony Fauci says there will be a pandemic and it will hit the United States, he's foreshadowing a lot of what he knows. In, uh, uh, in the Georgetown pandemic uh, preparedness uh, video that was produced, you know, Anthony Fauci is in it. The current um, White House coronavirus uh, coordinator, uh, Dr. Ashish Jha, he's in the movie. And they're saying there will be a coronavirus pandemic. And, and it's going to happen. And then we're going to respond in these ways. And we're going to feature uh, mass vaccination. So people need to understand this is all just click on it. Click on Georgetown coronavirus pandemic planning meeting in 2017 and watch it and and watch how this was uh, how this was planned. So a good summary of this is uh, written by Peter Bregan. It's in it's a book's called COVID-19 and the Global Predators. We are the prey. I wrote the introduction for it. And he lays out in the back, there's just a timeline. And it's just a, it's a, basically, it's a piece of evidence. There's 1,100 citations. There were 36 pandemic preparedness planning events, like building the lab and, and Bainzel going from BioMeru to Moderna and the contracts. And 25 of them generate written documents. You can just read what's going on. And then six of them were filmed, like the Georgetown meeting, <laughs> event 201. And you just can watch it. So no one can say that that this was a surprise. Yeah. That the military was working on it. Uh, my interpretation is I think this was a military program, and it went bad. And now we've been in a whole series of cover-ups and doubling down. It kind of smells like 
a giant series of cover-ups, right? It sure does. I want to take a second back and I want to do this. Um, I know I'm trying to move quickly, but I know we have a limited amount of time. I want to take a step back for some of my listeners that may be touching on all this stuff for the first time because I do want to spend a good amount of time talking about uh, methods of treatment of COVID, which I know that you're an expert in. The the first thing I'm hoping you can do for for somebody looking from the outside in that doesn't that hasn't looked into this that much, uh, can you describe the differences between the uh, the mRNA vaccinations and then like the Johnson and Johnson vaccine that was out there? Um, how are they alike and how are they how are they different? Um, and then from there we'll dovetail into uh, different methods of treatment that you've studied. Well, they're very different. And I think America should question, why does the US government feature Pfizer and Moderna so much? Mm-hmm. And why do they de-emphasize Johnson & Johnson? Yeah. I, I think that's a very interesting thing. Now, these vaccines have been out long enough. There must be a winner, there must be a loser, and there must be somebody in the middle. But why aren't we featuring the best vaccine? Right. Isn't that interesting? People say, well, just get, get a COVID shot. Uh, people, people say, anyone? Really? Are they all equal? And then the, the government or the employer says, well, we don't care. We don't care if they're equal or not. doesn't even matter. Just take one. That doesn't make any sense, right? If you're going to go through all the risks of taking a vaccine, wouldn't you want to take the best one, theoretically? I've always found that interesting. It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem very scientific. And when I was forced to, essentially forced to get vaccinated to uh to board a plane a couple of years ago, a trip I didn't have any option of going on. So I held out as long as I could. I went specifically for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because even though I had no idea about how mRNA technology worked and I, I just felt like, you know, I had heard the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was the traditional style vaccine. Uh, it was talked about less. I felt like the Soviet-style propaganda campaign behind it was a little bit lower volume than the other ones. I said, I'm going to go with this one just by virtue of the fact that it's the one that isn't being pushed. <laughs> well, let, let me say that um, <clears throat> that all the vaccines, because they expose the body to the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2, all of them carry the same dangers. Okay. So the same dangers, and the FDA agrees, heart damage, brain damage, uh, blood clotting, those are the big ticket ones. They, they all carry these. Now, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines are called adenoviral vaccines. They're in a replication incompetent adenoviral vector. And so when you get an injection of this, you're getting you know, quantities of, of virus that's carrying the genetic payload that's coding for the spike protein. <clears throat> and then in this um, manner, the genetic code gets into the cell and then the cell produces the messenger RNA for the spike protein and then the spike protein is produced. But the messenger RNA that's produced is natural messenger RNA, which is a single-use messenger RNA. So it's okay. using the adenoviral DNA. Of interest, just so you know, um, both AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson are made by Emergent Biosolutions, which is a defense contractor outside of Baltimore, Maryland. <laughs> just so you know, they're not made by these companies. Right. The, the, the vaccine companies are marketing shields because the vaccines are military mm-hmm. property. They're made by 
defense contractors. And under emergency, emergency use authorization, uh, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, they can't even inspect the vials. Wow. They have, there are no inspections of what's in these. Wow. Because, made, yeah. And so, um, so, yeah, so if you look at, you know, what's in your body, it came from emergent uh, biosolutions. And the theory here is that, you know, it would uh, undergo this period of uh, replication in the body, uh, not replication, uh, you know, production of the spike protein, and that's it. Uh, the nice thing about Johnson & Johnson is you don't have any synthetic messenger RNA. Right. Synthetic messenger RNA has really turned out to be a disaster. That's Pfizer and, and Moderna. And there, it's just, it, it is the RNA code, but there's a, a pseudouridine uh, uh, nucleoside analogs on the three prime and five prime end of these messenger RNA, and they appear to be undigestible. These uh, Pfizer and Moderna seem to stay in the body forever, and you're talking about that, just the you're talking about just the messenger RNA. You're saying yeah. it comes with the shot on uh, Moderna and Pfizer, right. but the it, body produces it naturally for Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca. Right, right. So. Um, so with Pfizer and Moderna, there's a paper by Rolkin and colleagues from Stanford, and they were, they were sampling lymph nodes, and they went out to two months, and the lymph nodes are loaded with this stuff. And so Pfizer and Moderna is, is not going away. There's a paper by, um, uh, um, by um, uh, Alden and colleagues, Yang D. Marinus is a senior author from Malmo, Sweden. They showed Pfizer actually reverse transcribes through an enzyme called Line 1, an endogenous um, enzyme, and it actually installs the Pfizer code permanently into the human DNA. And that was shown in a hepatoma cell line, but it's almost certainly happening in a mosaic of cells. Now, this is really disturbing. People took Pfizer and Moderna to have this code potentially uh, permanently in the body. So um, uh, it's, there's only been a few comparative studies because Pfizer is 30 micrograms of messenger RNA and Moderna is 100 micrograms, people may ask why. Why is one triple the dose? Well, they have slightly different codes. Remember that Moderna is now suing Pfizer over the patent because of the fact that, you know, Moderna had the government contract and Moderna wrote the patent first with the NIH. And, and there's now people think maybe Pfizer, you know, came in later and copied the code, but they're slightly different code, obviously. And so Moderna is a much higher dose. But in the comparative studies that have been done, Moderna is more damaging. For instance, there's two studies showing Moderna has more myocarditis than Pfizer, for instance. Well, what are the what are the negative effects of this uh, synthetic mRNA kind of lounging around in your body permanently? What have we have? Do we have any studies on what the negative effects of that are? No, but remember that, that both Pfizer and Moderna are not funding any studies on safety. The federal government is not funding any uh, studies on safety. So we don't know. We need, we you know, urgently need confirmatory studies to find out in other cell lines if there's reverse transcription and what happens. Uh, we have to find out if the code gets into the human um, chromosomes. Is it repressed chronically or can it be expressed in the setting of stress? Um, does it have any influence? This is very important. Is does it have any influence on tumor suppression or promotion of right. cancers? And people are greatly worried. The other thing about having foreign genetic code is sooner or later the body tries to chip away at this stuff and get rid of it. That there's probably fragments of genetic code, and there's a great concern those will be uh, oncogenic. They'll, they'll be cancer promoting. 
And, uh, you know, as genetic products, they should have gone through five years of safety testing. Instead, they, they said they went through three months of testing uh, with no uh, safety parameters. So to use genetic injections broadly, certainly messenger RNA was the, was the risk of, of all time, even though the military had a dream of doing this since 2012, to put it into mass uh, promotion. If, if they would have said, we're going to just do nursing home patients and try and careful look at safety, try to protect the most vulnerable, that would have been a, a reasonable, rational way to go. I think any doctor could have gone along with this. But when it said no, when Bill Gates in April of 2021, he's a central figure in this since the Gates Foundation is funding so much of vaccine uh, development and promotion, he said that, listen, essentially every person in the world has to take one of these. That's what he said publicly, you know, on TV. Uh, you know, that is a, a, an enormously reckless idea that the whole human population would take an injection of a brand new, untested, you know, we have no assurances of safety, a genetic product. Now, let's get back to Astra, AstraZeneca Johnson Johnson, we can throw in Sputnik as well, the Russian. These um, adenoviral vector uh, vaccines, replication incompetent, they always showed lower rates of um, protection, uh, theoretically, against SARS-CoV-2 and slightly enhanced risk of blood clots. In, uh, and so uh, the adenoviral vector itself is slightly thrombogenic. Um, but I think there's greater hope that for these products, that the body is going to get rid of these products long term, and you're not stuck with them right. in the human body. The spike protein is long lasting, whether you've had the infection or the vaccine or both. So here's the situation. Since the vaccines don't work and people get COVID anyway, they're getting multiple uh, exposures of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, the spike protein that Ralph Barrick engineered. Everyone has this. <clears throat> I have it in my body. You have it in your body. We all have part of the creation of Ralph Barrick and his team at UNC in our body right now, the spike protein, and that when it's in the human body, it does not go away. Yeah, one of the things that's fascinating to me, just to go back to what you were saying a second ago, uh, talking about the messenger RNA is – you know, look, even for somebody like me, I'm not involved in medicine and I'm, my data crunching skills are uh, poor at best. But, you know, one thing I was able to ascertain from the data over the last couple of years is that this, you know, COVID affects children uh, disproportionately less than it does for adults. Uh, and so, you know, I, I thought from the beginning, the idea of uh, forcing vaccinations on children and, you know, pregnant women, things of that nature, but specifically kids. I just saw yesterday, you know, approval for children as young as six months. And then you think about what you're just talking about there. The fact that we are injecting a synthetic foreign substance into these children that, you know, we don't really understand the long-term safety effects of when they're at less risk of COVID than they would be maybe from the flu, which is what data appears to show from the last time I looked at it. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, that is just a... That is an abhorrent thought when, when, you, when, you, when you circle it like that, isn't it? It is. I'm glad we're starting to move towards efficacy. You know, the correct way of dealing with any new medicinal product is talk about safety first. Right. Then talk about efficacy. Because here's the rules. It doesn't matter how good, in theory, a new product would be, a new vaccine. If it's not safe, it doesn't, it doesn't go. It's a no-go. Right. 
And there's countless examples. You know, the FDA and agencies worldwide have pulled hundreds and hundreds of drugs off the market. Hundreds. Because even though they have a theoretical benefit, they have safety issues. <clears throat> and America knows this. There's been product after product from, you know, Vioxx, which was supposed to be an arthritis medicine with less stomach upset. Well, it had safety problems. It was pulled off the market. Uh, I've been involved in so many of these. The very first drug to replace Coumadin, a blood thinner, is called Zymelagatran. Well, it had liver toxicity problems. And we're talking a few cases, five cases. I think it was five deaths with Zymelagatran. It's gone. It's gone. It doesn't matter how good it is. It's gone. And so with vaccines, we would never tolerate someone taking a shot and dying right there on the spot. Right. It's, it's absolutely unacceptable. I don't care how big the problem is because remember COVID, uh, it's very mild for most everybody in the population and only the senior citizens get sick and it's very easily treated. So we just, we use treatment uh, programs. So, you know, through 2020, uh, community standard of care, multi-drug treatment programs uh, were devised and implemented and, and anybody uh, who got sick, who sought help, quickly got uh, treatments with a variety of drugs. And so for that reason, we never needed to, to have a risky vaccine. So what happened with the vaccines on safety was just unprecedented. Uh, when Pfizer rolled out December 10th of 2022, people started dying quickly, right there on the spot or shortly afterwards. And they reported, they called Pfizer. They called the CDC. They reported it in the VAERS system. And looking backwards, to give you an idea, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System gets about 150 deaths in per year, largely from uh, nursing home workers, hospital workers. If someone dies right there in the vaccine center, those are the ones that largely get reported because they they feel like, listen, they just gave the shot and they died. It's it's got to be uh, it's got to be reported. Right. Um, and so that's VAERS, about 150 per year by by January. Uh, 22nd of 2020, we are already at 182 deaths, 182. So we were already above the 150 and it was just January of the year. Uh, it turns out that Pfizer worldwide, within 90 days of release of their product, Pfizer had gotten phone calls and taken the reports on um, uh, 1,223 deaths, wow. 1,223 wow. deaths. Now, Pfizer had this in their regulatory dossier, and we started to get really concerned in 2021, like what is going on? So under court order, uh, Pfizer was requested to, listen, release this to the public. We need to know. The lawyer for the FDA, Pfizer said they didn't want to release it. They appealed to the FDA. The lawyer for the FDA did not want to release this dossier for 55 years, for 55 years. And we said, listen, what are you hiding? We've got to see what's going on. Sure. Finally, they were pressed and it was released to this uh, uh, non-government organization called the Public Health Professional Review Committee. I know I'm the captain of the team. And this was stunning. The FDA was trying to block this information to the public. It's the, the, exact, it's the exact opposite behavior that, that you would expect from any entity interested in in transparency and making sure that safety was the priority. It's the exact opposite oh, of what you'd expect. Right. The FDA, uh, honestly, the deaths started happening, obviously, in December uh, of 20, 
2020, the FDA should have been on the hot phone with Pfizer saying, listen, something's going bad here. We need to shut this down. It should have been it should have been shut down or if we had even if we took a, a few weeks for the dust to come in and get processed, it should have been shut down before the end of January of 2021. Shut down. Now, Moderna came out, I believe, uh, December uh, 18th or so quickly afterwards. Moderna would have been shut down quickly. Johnson and Johnson came out, I believe, in March, but different mechanism. That one could have remained uh, on the market. Um, but uh, but the messenger RNA ones should have been shut down right away. Now, once we found out safety issues with Johnson Johnson, AstraZeneca, uh, it's just it's it's the the danger in these the common danger is that there's an uncontrolled production of spike protein for an uncontrolled duration of time. Right. It's the first time in in the history of medicine for a vaccine that we expose a lethal protein to the body with no control over it. Now, when we give a tetanus shot, it's a limited amount of the tetanus toxoid, a limited amount. You know, here with this spike protein, this engineered spike protein, uh, U.S. Uh, you know, U.S. In in ingenuity did it to have it explode in the body uncontrolled. So you took Johnson and Johnson, and let's say you're fine, but the next person takes it. Maybe they have a better uh, uptake mechanisms by genetically or what have you, and they get an explosive production of spike protein, and they die within a day. And that's happened. And so that's the gamble. This, these vaccines are a tremendous gamble. So uh, let's talk about the one question that always comes up when I listen to your interviews. And the one thing I want to ask you, which is how do you differentiate the risks of all of the things that we're talking about and myocarditis, which we haven't talked about, but there's been new data on that as well. How do, how do we gauge the risks of all of these um you know, like you're talking about a uptake and then the next day, uh, you know, somebody dying from the vaccine. How do you differentiate that or instances of myocarditis from what they would have been if the person had acquired COVID naturally? Because I'm not, you know, uh, I kind of want to veer away from effects, side effects of the vaccine versus nothing and kind of make a benchmark right. of if somebody acquired the virus naturally, because I think that's right. a better comparison. So people have said, listen, uh, now that we know all this, well, heck, I could die with the vaccine, I could die with COVID. I've right. heard people say, say this, right? Now, the risk of death with COVID for people under age 65 is still way, 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 way less than 1%. It's just, it, it's a negligible risk. The virus has progressively mutated and gotten more and more mild. Now, that's the, there are two factors related to hospitalization and death. One is receiving no early therapies, none, right. zero treatment. Just, just get sicker and sicker for two weeks and be hospitalized. And the other thing is natural immunity. Once we've already had the infection, then there's a negligible chance with the second infection that there's going to be any bad outcomes. This is very important. There's a paper by Chin and colleagues uh, a prison uh, study, 59,000 prisoners, 17,000 staff, and they showed once we've already had COVID, there's a 0% chance of hospitalization and death with the next infection. It doesn't matter whether or not you take a vaccine. Right. So that's what we have to factor in uh, and weigh it out. So that's what we know there. So the question is, can the vaccine actually 
do anything. Well, the, the first claim was the vaccines prevent someone from getting COVID. And within a few months in 2021, the CDC had thousands and thousands of documented breakthrough cases. People yeah. fully vaccinated were getting COVID like crazy and being hospitalized and dying. So that first claim of it prevents COVID, that claim went down. The second claim is, well, it stops people from spreading it. We should we should give it, uh, you know, in, in companies and schools and the military. People will stop spreading it. That claim went down. In fact, that was so bad. Fully vaccinated people were spreading to each other uh, in multiple studies. It was studied by Chow, uh, Rhymerisma, Acharian, uh, Acorsi. They showed that the viral load in the nose for someone vaccinated was just as high or higher than someone unvaccinated. So it didn't didn't do anything there. So our CDC director came out in 2021 and said, listen, these do not stop transmission. So, you know, don't get a vaccine to protect your grandparents, that type of thing. So our CDC said that. So the last claim was, listen, the vaccines really don't work, but they make COVID less severe. Well, we look at the randomized trials, which is the only way to figure this out. Prospective randomized double blind placebo controlled trials. Uh, there's never been a reduction in death and hospitalization uh, as a primary secondary endpoint. Never. And in fact, in the Pfizer program, there's more deaths with Pfizer vaccine than there is with placebo. So, so it's been a false claim that it, it makes the, the illness less severe. And there's some papers that try to make the claim, but the papers never account for early treatment and they never account for natural immunity. So right. um, we have a situation where the vaccines have failed on these three claims. And at this point in time, I, I think the FDA knows this. You know, by the way, with the, the current set of vaccines, they, they just skipped human testing altogether. They said, forget it. The vaccines really don't do anything anyway. So they, they just skipped human testing altogether. Yes. Yeah, so it, it's really the onus is really on the vaccines at this point, because natural immunity has been shown to be far more robust than the immunity provided by the vaccines. Is that correct or no? It's true. At this point in time, I don't think there's really any immunity from the vaccines. They, all of the claims have gone down, uh, you know, in the, in the UK and Canada, Australia, the vast majority of people in the hospital are sick with COVID are fully vaccinated. The same thing in the U.S. now. So, you know, I don't think there's any immunity from these vaccines. When someone takes a vaccine as a doctor, I have zero confidence that they have any protection. Yeah, it's interesting. My my doctor told me the same thing in, uh, in I think it was April 2020 when I first reached out to my personal physician. Uh, you know, he said, look, you're you're 38 years old. You're in great shape. He said, you know, all things being equal, you're going to get this eventually. I, you know, there, to me, there's no point of getting the vaccine. You're free to do whatever you'd like. But, you know, I would. And what he said was that we have no long term safety data. That was the first thing my doctor told me. Um, the last question I want to ask you, I know we're short on time and I appreciate you so much coming on and taking time for us. I want to just touch on the idea of early treatment because other than natural immunity, that's the other uh, thing that really hasn't been talked about and often is ignored when talking about alternative uh, treatments, uh, alternative meaning other than the vaccine. Can you just uh, give us a little bit on the importance of early treatment, what you found, and then maybe also touch on uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, how they're characterized in the media versus what the data has showed you? Sure. So yeah, I point people to my website, PeterMcCulloughMD.com, the McCullough Protocol. It's trademarked. Uh, you know, two seminal publications in 2020. 
a whole series of practical application publications. Uh, in short, no single drug is necessary nor sufficient to treat a serious case. We need multiple drugs in combination. A paper by Gukliaklis and colleagues showed by December of 2020 with multiple studies in Texas and New York and France and elsewhere, multiple studies showed combination drug early treatment uh, had clear and convincing evidence that it could reduce hospitalization and death. And that's with a p-value less than 0.01. So it's very convincing that early treatment was necessary. So starting at the top, we use now we use virucidal nasal washes. So dilute povidone iodine, dilute hydrogen peroxide, have to spray it up the nose, sniff it back, and spit it out. Do it twice on each side, and then gargle with the solution. This is part of the McCullough protocol. It's very important. 12 clinical studies, three large randomized trials, way better than a vaccine. Turns the PCR negative within three days. So it cuts down in infectivity, reduces hospitalization and death. Everyone knows that the test is positive in the nose. You have to spray some medicine in the nose. It's very simple. You know, this is, it doesn't get any more simple than that. You can't take a bunch of pills and shots and get it in the nose. It's very important. You have to spray a medicine up the nose. I can't emphasize that enough. I use it every day in my practice. This was probably the single greatest advancement that came out of the research on how to treat COVID. Then we use uh, oral uh, nutraceuticals and supplements, vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin, uh, an antiviral over-the-counter drug, famotidine or pepsid. Uh, these are simple, safe things. They're not curative, but they take an edge off the virus. Everybody should have a home supply kit of this. Don't go shopping on the day you get COVID. Have all this stuff ahead of time. And then after that, we do have prescription drugs that are antiviral. They've been overemphasized, I think, uh, but they certainly can be used. You can treat COVID without them as well, but they include hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, Paxlovid, and molnupiravir. And it's kind of dealer's choice. I, I think probably the most most active one that's most responsive is the higher doses of ivermectin, but it, you know, people can pick their choice. Um, uh, we use usually an antibiotic just to cut down on the phlegm, and that's uh, doxycycline or zithromycin because the bacterial component of the phlegm. We use uh, inhaled steroids. Budesonide is wonderful uh, to, to improve the, the airways there. Uh, oral prednisone, the steroid, very important. We need blood thinners, so oral uh, aspirin. Some other uh, anti-inflammatories, oral colchicine. And then uh, immobilized seniors, people in wheelchairs, um, uh, when my dad got COVID in a senior home, we use Lovenox. We actually use a blood thinner for a period of time so they don't develop blood clots. But so this has to be started within the first three days. So we don't wait for people to get sick and be hospitalized. You know, getting hospitalized is already, you've kind of, that's a, that's a lost case in a sense. Right. We right. have to treat before someone gets hospitalized. So this is called sequence multidrug treatment. It's supported by the American, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. There's another protocol similar called uh, the FLCC protocol, Math Plus and, and IMATH. Uh, you know, these protocols came out in 2020 and they were the way to handle COVID-19. The disappointment was why didn't the CDC and NIH feature these protocols? Instead, they, they literally said to do nothing, which was a disaster. 
Yeah, listen, Dr. McCullough, I know that also you have faced a fair amount of uh, pushback, including the risk of losing your medical license for speaking out the way that you have. I'd love to spend more time talking to you at a, at a different point. I know you have a hard stop right now, so I just want to take a moment to say thank you so much, I think, at the very least for having the uh, courage to talk about these things. And by the way, your book is called The Courage to Face COVID-19, the link I'll put in my podcast description. The courage that you have to continue to speak out uh, in what you think is the nation's uh, best interest amidst all of the pushback. And if you, I encourage people to listen to other podcasts you've been on, you detail the, the pushback that you're getting. Uh, it's immense. Uh, just want to say thank you. think the nation owes you a, a debt of gratitude, and, and I genuinely appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. That was Dr. Peter McCullough, the one, the only. Uh, man, I held him for a couple minutes longer than I should have, but I, I had to rush the uh, the exit there. But uh, the book is called Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. He didn't tout his book, which tells you exactly, uh, you know, where his priorities are. He's not on here saying, buy the book, buy the book. It's in the book. We write about it in the book. I've heard him talk about it once in a while on other podcasts, but uh, it is courage to face covid.com. If you're interested in buying a copy, I haven't read it yet, but it's on my list. Uh, Dr. Peter McCullough and please, you know, look, if it felt like that stopped short, it, it did. I, I could have talked to him for four hours. I had so many more questions. Go and listen to his other podcasts, specifically his podcast with Joe Rogan. There was one on Spotify yesterday that I was listening to, and I'm going to pull it up on my phone. Um, because I want to tell you guys, let's see, that one was the BS Free MD Show on the Doctor Podcast Network. Uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, Here is the Science is the name of the podcast. It's episode number 89 of the BS Free MD Show with Doctors May and Tim Hindmarsh. Uh, great podcast. Really enjoyed it. But if you just Google him on Apple Podcasts, or if you just search him, rather, or on Spotify, his interviews come up. Uh, unbelievable credentials, fascinating to listen to, and uh, you know does a great job citing where he gets all of his information from. The fact that I could sit there and watch him on Rogan for four hours and him just rattle off. Uh, you know, he must have rattled off 50 to 100 different citations off the top of his head. Just goes to show you how plugged in and in tune he is. And uh, I think, look, at the very least, because, of course, you'll look him up and he will be uh, written about as a misinformation guy. And uh, this podcast might get taken down from YouTube or whatever. But if you if you even if let's just say he's wrong about everything. Right. Which he isn't. But let's just say let's say the truth comes out that he's a quack and he's wrong about everything. Just the idea of having the courage to put all of his opinion out there uh, in the environment that we're in where. You know, people like that. He's getting a lot of pushback. They're trying to take his fucking medical license. I mean, does he sound like an insane, crazy person to you? No, he sounds like a well-credentialed scientist, researcher, doctor that knows exactly what he's talking about. So for him to endure the bullshit that he's enduring, I, I think, uh, you know, I would just thank him for that. Just just to hear the other side of the story. And then from there, let people make up their own mind. You know? God, we certainly heard enough from the CDC from Dr. Fauci, from the government over the last three years. So it's nice to get a counterbalance. All right, fools, thank you so much for joining me today. 
I was honored to do this podcast, one of my absolute uh, favorites to listen to. So today was a real joy for me. And uh, I'll be back soon. I have more great content on the way. All right, peace.